I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS, where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. In this episode of The Trade Guys, we discuss the global minimum corporate tax and the EU's delay of its own corporate tax plan. We also go over the latest updates on USMCA and NAFTA. Plus, we react to the EU's new proposal to fight climate change through emission reductions, efficiency targets, and a CBAM. Stay tuned for all that and more on this episode of The Trade Guys. Hello, Trade Guys. I hope you both had a great 4th of July holiday. We are back after two weeks and we have a bunch of news to get through today. First on the agenda, let's talk about new updates to the global minimum corporate tax. The European Union agreed to delay its own corporate tax plan following pressure from President Biden and Treasury Secretary Yellen. I know Yellen was in Brussels for meetings where she lobbied against the EU's digital levy, but is this a temporary win for the administration? I think so. I'm actually, this is one of the few things I'm actually optimistic about. The pieces seem to be falling in place. You know, the the agreement is missing details that needs to be fleshed out. But each step of the way, you know, the countries have come together on it. I think Yellen has uh, handled the thing really brilliantly in trying to uh, not make threats. She's sort of been the anti-Trump on this, but to bring everybody along with logic and, and persuasion, their most difficult task is going to be bringing the Congress along, which may be harder than bringing the, I think, 132 countries that are on board so far. But, you know, one step at a time. And so far, I think it's been a real success story and a needed one. So it's a welcome development. The approach is actually win-win for the Biden administration's agenda. On one level, they want to reduce the likelihood that U.S. tech companies, large platform companies, get scraped by foreign tax authorities. So they're trying to trying to forestall that to the extent they can. And secondly, they've actually got a very a robust domestic fiscal spending agenda that they'd like tax revenue for. And so one of the sources for revenue would be to raise corporate taxes, but they want to be able to do it in such a way that they minimize the competitive disadvantage created by a high corporate tax rate on an international basis. So this this works both sides of that equation for them. They postpone the the uh, the digital services tax uh, at least for a moment, and they potentially get an opportunity for a higher statutory rate on U.S. taxation without reducing American international competitiveness. Now that's the that's the positive side of the story. I think this is uh, sort of early days on an international basis. Uh, believe it or not, 130 countries really isn't enough. When you look at the, particularly Europe and the way the European Union manages tax policy, there are a couple of low-tax jurisdictions that have created advantage for themselves in terms of corporate location and employment uh, with that low-tax strategy, and they're, they're going to be hard-pressed to give it up without a concession. And tax taxation is still a member state area of sovereignty. So so they, they, they've got a lot, but not quite enough. <laughs> Second point I'd make internationally is, and it, it, when you deal with tax policy, agreeing on the statutory rate may or may not matter when it comes to the effective rate. So every every country has 
a law, which or would would have a tax law, that's what's called the statutory rate. This agreement is about the statutory rates, but the actual applied rate or the the uh, effective rate for any given company depends on how the code's written, and that's quite complex. What I'm suggesting is that internationally, there's still a fair amount of work to do. And I think Bill's right, domestically, there's a ton of work to do. Taxation is a, an Article One power. The Congress manages tax policy, and this would uh, come in the form of a tax treaty, which would require two-thirds of the Senate. The real question is, I think, when the work with the, uh, with the Congress starts, and for me, the, the most interesting question here is whether anybody in the Congress actually cares about big tech companies getting their, their international tax bill doubled or tripled or maybe quadrupled. Given how members of Congress feel about big tech these days, maybe it would be all fun and games to let the Europeans and others go ahead with their digital services taxes just to watch fireworks happen. So I, I'm going to be very interested to see how that plays out. But that's a domestic matter. It's a good start. Uh, given what the Biden administration wants to accomplish, uh, but we're at square one. Well, I maintain my optimism, uh, uh, despite Scott's uh, comments on on the road bumps ahead. I mean, he's right about that. I think it's now up to 132 countries, are 90% of global GDP. So I think we've got more than a critical mass. I think some of the com- countries that have withheld their approval will be Coming around, uh, there was an interview uh, yesterday, I think, with the president of Estonia, which is one of the countries that has not climbed on board, who basically was saying that that uh, they need to look at the details because they need to make sure that whatever it is is compatible with their tax system, which is, I gather, a little bit unusual compared to other tax systems. Secretary Yellen alluded to that the other day. But I think that, you know, that is a ray of hope there. I've talked to the Irish about this a little bit because they've been one of the most vocal opponents. And my comment was actually similar to the one that, that Secretary Yellen uh, has made, which is that the reason that, that uh, I think Ireland has been very successful with uh, getting uh, investment, foreign investment there, uh, it's not just because they have a 12.5% tax rate. You know, they have an educated, disciplined, motivated workforce. It's English speaking, more or less. And uh, it's proximate, you know, to the United States. It's not, uh, it's about the same to fly to Dublin or Shannon as it is to fly to LA. So it's a convenient, attractive location if you want to be in the EU. Now, with the, particularly now with the UK out, it's an attractive place to go. And I have to say, when I was at the NFTC, I spent, we did, we worked on this a little bit. We had an event with uh, the Irish ambassador then and uh, a representative of a major corporation that had invested there. And we talked about, you know, why Ireland? And his comments were interesting. He said that the, his company has had a list of 18 factors that they take into account. A tax is only one. And so they looked at all the other things, including the things I, I mentioned. And I have to say, when I was, I subsequently went to Ireland and, and looked into this a little bit more. And I had a fascinating meeting with the, the Irish Investment and Development Authority people. And these guys really know what they're doing. They do a very, very good job, not just of attracting uh, investors, but of working their way through the process. You know, all countries have bureaucracies, uh, Ireland is no exception. But here is uh, an entity in the government that will be the foreign company's advocate, that will clear away red tape, clear away debris. And what I thought was most interesting, will stick with you. And they, they maintain the relationship 
even after the investment is, has been undertaken, even after the company is located there. Uh, they told me the story of a large American company that had built a big facility there and then a few years later uh, downsized it significantly. And then a few years after that, decided that it wanted to, uh, you know, resume a larger operation in, in Europe and came back to Ireland in part because they had maintained their relationship with the Irish authorities the entire time. The government didn't write them off just because they were leaving. Uh, the government maintained uh, contact. In my experience looking at, you know, with, with, with states to try to attract investment here, which is kind of a similar thing, there's a right way to do it. And uh, you can be very successful with a lot of hands-on attention. Uh, the Irish do that very well. I don't think they're going to be disadvantaged by this move. I mean, that's the bottom line here. Uh, and I think that means eventually they'll figure that out and come around, which then takes us back to the U.S. and, and the Congress. And uh, Secretary Yellen thinks that the business community will uh, ultimately support what she's doing and tell Congress to pass it. And I'm inclined to think she's right about that. Certainty is good. And this eliminates a lot of uh, uncertainty and it would provide a lot of clarity. I think what it means for the high tech companies is that, you know, they're going to get taxed someplace. And I'm not sure that they care that much whether they're taxed in Estonia or Ireland or the United States, particularly if it's all the same amount, they're going to be taxed. So once they get over the hump of, of realizing they're going to be taxed, uh, I think they'll welcome this development because it uh, will remove some of the element of, of tax competition between countries, which I think for a company is a distraction and kind of a rabbit hole that you go down trying to figure out who's got the best rate, when in fact, that's not the most important factor often in deciding where to invest. So I continue to be optimistic. Right, and officials are hoping to complete a deal by October, which is when G20 leaders will return to Italy for the last summit of the year, so I'm sure we'll continue to have updates on the issue. Turning now to a USMCA update, the US and Mexico settled their first labor complaint after allegations from workers at a General Motors facility for labor violations. We talked about this a couple months ago, but can you remind me and the audience what happened then? Well, this is the first test of the new mechanism, uh, the new dispute settlement mechanism that is basically an expedited process for suspected labor violations. And it's, uh, it's set up with established panelists and with a fairly rapid timetable established to essentially provide clarity on these provisions when it comes to labor rights. And one of the things that attracted the AFL-CIO to support USMCA where they previously opposed the NAFTA, that this resolved a concern of theirs. So basically, this is the first use of this new, new uh, dispute settlement process. It seems to have worked. Uh, at least they've gotten to a satisfactory outcome, essentially a settlement of this first case. Look, that's good news. It's good news when you create a, pro a process that, that appears to work uh, and it's uh, satisfactory. Whether it works the second or third or 20th time will be an important element, but at least we're off to a good start. So that's fine. Now, the USMCA is a three-country agreement, and there's lots of issues. Labor is, is an important one, but not by any means the only one. So there's uh, lots of work to do uh, in North America to maintain the agreements and the competitiveness that is created by the agreements. I agree. It's a promising start. It'll be interesting to see how it plays out because the, the issue here involves a union vote. And the allegation was that, that 
there was not going to be a fair union vote in April. The workers were being intimidated to vote for the basically for the, the company union, for lack of a better term. And I think the, the, the agreement, the workout is that there's going to be a new vote uh, in August and there's going to be a whole bunch of observers and there's a bunch of rules to try to guarantee that this will be a, you know, a free and fair vote, I guess. And I think then what will, it'll be interesting to see what happens because I think in part, uh, the way this often plays out is that, that people tend to regard the procedure as fair or not, depending on the outcome of the vote. The AFL-CIO, uh, I suspect if the workers vote not to join the union that the AFL-CIO prefers, then I think the AFL-CIO is going to say the process failed and, uh, you know, it's defective and we need to go to dispute settlement, which is what this rapid response procedure was designed to, to obviate. Of course, there, there's also the reverse possibility that the workers vote to join the union that, that uh, the AFL-CIO supports, and then in which case do you have uh, elements in Mexico saying that it was all rigged and we've caved into the Americans and this is the wrong way to go. I mean, I think, you know, the, the, the ultimate parent here is General Motors, and I'm sure they'll respect the outcome. But, you know, this, this, it could end up being a little bit like the election of, you know, the American election of 2020 with, uh, you know, this big argument about who actually won. This has been known to happen uh, before. So I hope it works. You know, I hope the workers' voices are heard. I hope they make an intelligent decision. And then we'll see afterwards what the blowback is. So we just talked about the US and M part of USMCA, but let's also talk about a new issue related to Canada and the US. TC Energy Corporation, which is based in Alberta in Canada, filed a notice of intent to initiate a legacy NAFTA claim under USMCA. Can you guys break down what happened here? Well, this was the uh, owner and uh, builder of the Keystone XL pipeline. And uh, when uh, the Biden administration entered office, I think it was day one or two, they suspended construction. The administration suspended the U.S. Uh, side of the construction of the Keystone XL pipeline. That's what gave rise to the dispute. Interestingly, when the USMCA was being negotiated, the provisions to protect investors were reduced pretty dramatically. You had uh, an unusual point of view from a Republican U.S. Trade Representative, uh, Robert Lighthizer, who uh, considered investor protections being, you know, sort of uh, government-supplied risk insurance for outsourcing, which was incorrect at the time. It's still, I think, the point of view that's, that's still a, uh, a very unfair characterization of why investor protections are, are good policy. But that said, USMCA contains very limited protections for investors. It's really only in the energy sector. It's only with Mexico and the United States and Canada and Mexico, not with Canada, US. And uh, so there is residual sort of grandfathered authority under the NAFTA Chapter 11. And that's the basis that is the authority used for entering into this dispute. This is an investment dispute. It's, it's basically an arbitration case. It'll be handled the way other NAFTA cases have been handled. Interestingly, the United States has never lost an arbitration case on investment protections. So we'll be interested to see how it plays out. My own view is that the main reason the United States had never lost a NAFTA investor dispute is because of the Administrative Procedures Act. You know, we had some close run things when it came to states and state regulations being either discriminatory or arbitrary. Uh, the Glanis Gold case, which was about uh, California state regulation, uh, was a very close run thing. 
Uh, but for the most part, when it comes to U.S. law and regulation, if you follow the Administrative Procedures Act, which is mandatory for every sort of informal rulemaking or regulatory action, uh, it's very difficult to accuse the regulators of violating what would have been the treaty obligations of you know, reasonable treatment under international law. So I think that's why we never lost. In this case, uh, the Biden administration acted without using the APA or without any record of it. It was just handled via an executive order of, on day two in office. This, this is an interesting case from that standpoint, and we'll see what happens. Now, it, it won't build the pipeline. Uh, this is really the investor trying to recover the lost investment. And so it's a, this is a monetary damages only. Uh, it'll be handled by a three-person arbitration panel, and uh, it'll take about as long as complex civil litigation, so we won't know the answer for some time. But it's a, it's a reminder that, uh, that investment disputes will still arise and uh, that investors, to, to have uh, predictability and, uh, and to make the treaties work the way they're supposed to, if they're granted rights of fair treatment, that there ought to be ways to uh, enforce those rights. So we'll see what happens. It'll probably be the last ever uh, NAFTA Chapter 11 case. We'll see. Yeah, I don't have much to add. I think that's Scott's gotten it right thoroughly. Just I note it's a lot of money. Keystone wants $15 billion in, uh, in damages. Doesn't mean they'll get it, but that's what, what's on the table. It'll take a long time. People are thinking uh, maybe five years to work your way through this. It's a little bit unusual because this is a case where the U.S. government has taken different positions at different times. You know, Obama rejected the permit. Trump reversed that, which brought it back to life. And then Biden reversed Trump. So, you know, the government's kind of back where it started. But I think, you know, uh, Keystone will make the case, I'm sure, that, you know, with Trump's approval, we put all these things in, started all these things moving. Uh, and we've suffered real harm because the government is, uh, the U.S. has reversed itself. So it'll be interesting to see what the panel does. I don't envy them. It'll be a hard decision, I think. Oh, yeah. And it's it's always hard for the investors to win. Investors win a lot less than half the time when it goes all the way to a decision. And uh, they're often last resort cases. This is, this is, I think, the fact that they're not trying to get the permit reinstated. They're just trying to recover damages. Uh, indicates that uh, the company's kind of at the end of its rope. So worth watching. $15 billion is a lot of rope. Yes. Last on the agenda today, and this is hot off the press, the EU released details of their Green Deal today, which outlines its plan to fight climate change. There's a lot in here, including plans to reduce greenhouse gas emissions 55% by 2030, new efficiency targets for car engines and housing, and a carbon border tax proposal. What were your guys' reactions? I guess I have two, and we're drawing here from work that the Scholl Chair is doing right now, which will soon appear. So stay tuned for a more thorough uh, discussion of some of these issues um, shortly. I think what they're recommending uh, makes a couple things clear. One, uh, they seem to be more prepared to use sticks than we are. Uh, the Biden proposals on climate change are mostly carrots right now. Incentives to do the right thing, tax incentives to develop green technologies, convert to electric vehicles, et cetera, et cetera. The EU is proposing more mandatory stuff, requiring buildings, including existing buildings, to convert to more climate-friendly methods of, of heating and cooling, eliminating uh, internal combustion engines by, I think, 2035, I think was the... Uh, the target. It's a mix. I mean, they've got incentives too, but uh, 
It's much more focused on sort of mandatory developments. It'll be interesting to see what their public opinion does. I mean, my column this week talked about the difference in public opinion between Europeans and Americans on uh, on these issues. I think the Europeans are uh, much farther down the road in accepting a global that it's a global problem that needs a global solution, uh, and they're going to need to take some fairly serious action. And I'm not sure that Americans are there yet. The other issue is is uh, CBAMs, carbon border adjustment measures, and I'm really going to be interested to see what the re- American reaction is to this. It could go several different ways. The short-term reaction is going to be this is a European protectionist plot to tax American exports to Europe on the basis of their carbon content. I hope it doesn't stay there. I hope that uh, what it ends up being is it leads to calls for us to do the same thing, which would level the playing field uh, and which would, however, be, I think, a pro-climate and pro-climate mitigation step. The trick, of course, for everybody, them and us, is to do this in a WTO consistent way. My view has always been that you can do that. It's complicated. Basically, you have to make sure that you're not giving your own guys a break uh, and that you're not treating the foreigners worse than you're treating the domestic parties. Uh, But I think that's possible. The real issue in the short run is going to come down to, you know, whether Americans are willing to uh, move fairly forcefully in, in the direction of sticks as well as carrots, or they're just going to dismiss this as a, as a European plot. Yeah, look, uh, the two issues here, one is the economics, the other is the politics. Uh, on the economics, look, most economists agree that uh, the most efficient way to reduce carbon emissions is to tax carbon. So that's not a bad idea, and it's, it is probably more efficient than the alternatives that governments have, which is basically preferences for certain kinds of vehicles or whatever, subsidies, those kinds of things. Pricing on carbon is certainly economically sound, not crazy. Now let's talk about the voters. The voters didn't get a chance to react to this European proposal because the commission doesn't particularly test out ideas with voters. The Swiss did, and the Swiss rejected basically a green agenda that, that, that would increase the prices of energy. So that's a recent data point from not Europe per se, but, but the, the geography. The first political point I'd make is that, look, a lot of Europeans wrote a lot of opinion pieces and commentary on during the entirety of the Trump presidency on how bad protectionism is. And I just hope those European commentators who criticized the tariff man will reflect on the fact that that's exactly what a carbon adjusted, a border adjustment is. It's a tariff. It is protectionism. All right. You may think that your idea is better than Donald Trump's. You may intend you may actually believe that the goal is something worth doing, but let's agree that this is protectionism. It is one of the difficulties of the, that approach to climate change is that in normal cases, you, you advocate for open markets because it leads to higher living standards. This has the problem of if you, if you put barriers to trade in place, even if it's for a good cause like this, it will lower living standards. It will raise the raise costs for consumers. And that I noted uh, in the Bloomberg interview that was published earlier this week with uh, Gina McCarthy, uh, the Biden administration's climate person. She said, hey, a plain carbon price would end up landing on consumers, and we don't want that. Well, look, if you want the Green New Deal, consumers will find energy getting more expensive. That's happening in California today, which is our test market. 
for the Green New Deal more than anything else. The California energy policy makes all forms of energy much more expensive to consumers. So this is this is something that we're going to have to come to grips with as as a as a country. Uh, I think the politics are very tricky. I would note that Republicans in the Senate proposed raising the gasoline tax, which is basically a user fee, in order to pay for infrastructure. And the administration and Senate Democrats both rejected that. We're a ways away from having consumers face the fact that if you really want to reduce carbon with these kinds of measures, okay, energy gets more expensive. Uh, and uh, it'll be an interesting uh, element to watch. But, but I would, for me, the more irritating starting point is that after four years of complaining about, uh, about tariffs being, being bad, proposing a set of tariffs that are now good uh, is, uh, is a little much to swallow. That's one of the dilemmas of, of this issue that kind of has permeated the, the trade debate. When we talk to environmentalists, and we do frequently as part of our research, the trade people tend to say, you know, there are rules, and if you design your programs according to the rules, everything will be fine. Uh, and the environmental people, and of course, I'm a trade person, so I'm, there's a little bias built into this, but the environmental people tend to say, well, you know, our goal of mitigating climate change is so important that you need to change the rules so we can do what we want. And that then launches a discussion about how hard it is to change the rules in the trade business. But um, you're going to see that develop here. But I think that uh, the larger point is is the one that I think Scott and I both have been making, that this is in uh, in a significant part, I think, a function of, of uh, where the public is. Uh, I don't think that either Europe or the United States right now with some exceptions and some conspicuous exceptions, but I think in general, uh, we're not graced with uh, with bold leaders who are willing to step out in front of the crowd and say this this is the way to go with some risk to their uh, political survivability. I think that's not particularly true in Europe, and as I said, we've got some uh, exceptions here. The Europeans have the advantage of a, of, of a public though that is farther along in, in facing this than than we are. But the, the problem ends up being what came out in a private roundtable that we held, which is that if you talk to the environmental experts, they'll say that the incentives that the Biden administration is proposing, that's all good, but it's not going to be enough. It's not, it's too little too late, basically, if you want to uh, stop the, the climate effects that we're already seeing in the form of temperature and wildfires and things like that. You've got to do more. Uh, but then the dilemma is that that more means uh, mandatory regulatory measures, which I th neither which the Congress won't vote and the public won't accept. So you know the U.S. is kind of at, at the end of the day in a position of, of not doing enough, knowing it's not doing enough, but not in a position to do more. Europe, I think, to its credit, is making a uh, a well-intentioned effort to do more. Now, whether they'll get away with it or not remains to be seen. You know, the thing that came out today is just the beginning of what is going to be pro probably be at least a two-year process. And nobody expects it to end up uh, the same way it's being proposed today. So there's a lot of twists and turns uh, to go, and we'll probably be commenting on every one of them. Yeah, Bill's right about that. I mean, there are big differences within Europe. You have France, for instance, which gets much of their power from nuclear energy and actually has a very modest carbon footprint for the size of its economy and the, and the size of the country. You have other member states in the European Union who are still using coal or 
meeting their renewables goal by buying wood chips, wood pellets from the United States and burning them in, uh, in hydrocarbon plants. So there's a lot of differences within Europe that will have to be ironed out if this proposal goes forward. And then at the same time, you're, you're left with a border adjustment, which is basically a new tariff. And that affects your, uh, your bound rates at the WTO and other international obligations. So this is, this is tricky, uh, tricky business. And uh, as I said, I I'm, I'm continue to watch where the voters are. I was surprised, but not completely surprised, by the Swiss rejection recently. So uh, sooner or later, we all have to bring the voters along. That's the way, uh, way uh, self-governing wor- works. Well, as Bill said, the Schulcher has a few publications in the pipeline that discuss this transatlantic debate, so be sure to check those out. Thanks, Scott and Bill, for another great episode today. Thanks. Thank you. To our listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.